Hey, 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 welcome to another episode of Not Rocket Science, the show that talks about the intersectional relationship between business culture and technology. I'm Sean, your host, and I hope you guys are doing well in this rapidly emerging holiday season. Yep, it's upon us again. I... I'm already a bit concerned that I've fallen behind on the gift-giving thing, but we will pull it together. We will pull it together at the end like we always do. Um, Hope you guys are doing well, going to your office parties, getting schmacked, all that good stuff. Tis the season. All right, so this one's going to be a little weird because this is going to be a pretty drastic switch from the types of content we normally talk about jobs work businesses working with recruiters startups things like that um i'm just gonna do a little something different today we'll see how it goes i don't know but uh one thing about me that i don't talk so much about on this podcast is i'm i'm a really big sports fan and particular i am a really big college football fan and um, this is going somewhere, I promise. Basically, one of the things that I like to follow and keep track of is the behind-the-scenes look at college football. From the recruiting to facilities building to conference realignment. College football is the craziest business to analyze and follow on earth other than maybe cryptocurrency in my opinion um there is just so much going on and it has this kind of old school feel to it it's like the wild wild west or something still because there's this whole donor and booster culture that can kind of uh deform itself into this kind of slimy bag man handling money to recruits type of thing kind of like what uh, spike lee in um he got game they kind of touched up upon that blue chips the movie with nick nolte touches up on that um for basketball which is the slimiest when it comes to that stuff but pretty bad in football too but the entire business of college football is kind of polarizing and look i went to a school that's very bad at college football i went to rutgers university um but it's unique because Rutgers plays in one of the highest profile, expensive, you know, high visibility leagues, Big Ten East, very tough to compete in. But at the same time, they are not like these other big time football schools, these blue blue blood programs like an Ohio State or Michigan when it comes to support, fans, donors, etc. So it it puts this interesting light on the program because there's lots of people 
for those of you who don't know, Rutgers is the State University of New Jersey. In New Jersey, a lot of people see the numbers that Rutgers is spending on football, like $32 million for a coach, and they're kind of like, what? But they don't realize that that puts Rutgers at the bottom of the league that they compete in because the numbers are so crazy in college football. So I kind of want to talk about how the sausage is made in a sense, when it comes to the business of college football, because I think it is fascinating. Um, there's not much visibility on it, and it is just in a kind of transitional time um, because of the emergence of big money television contracts, cable stations, and with the evolution of how TV is turning out, these new streaming platforms. Um, so I want to get into it right off the bat. So this is true for all of the major college football leagues or it's conferences, I should say. It's called Power Five, so Power Five conferences. Um, when it comes to Power Five conferences, a lot of people talk about you know like the integrity and morality of the sport because these are institutions of learning. One thing to learn about college football especially, but all of college sports in general, is the model for running a major athletic department is completely broken. It is a completely broken model um, because football drives the ship. In general, football at a big-time school like a Michigan um, is responsible for about... 75-ish percent of the total revenue year over year for the entire athletic department's budget. Basically, at these big-time schools, the football team creates the revenue that all the other sports kind of mooch off of. It's almost like communism in a way. Um, but that's just how it works. And you know that's broken, but that's a small sliver of the bigger picture, which is totally broken. Most schools do not even make money on their football team. So the football team drives the bus, and it's the term you hear over and over again, the front porch of the university, but only about, yeah, I don't know the exact number right now, but usually it's around 20 to 25 teams per year actually come out making a profit. Most college football teams, major teams, that drive all this revenue operate at a loss. So that shows you that the entire model is broken. But there's no real way of fixing it because of conference alignment and because of the fact that there's been, you know, over a hundred years of this model being in the works from when college football transitioned from being basically an intramural sport on campuses where you had like Ivy Leagues dominating to um, what it is now, which is being something that has major television appeal. So as the TV became more prominent in homes in, you know, the 50s, that's college football kind of uh, rode that wave. And then that's how you started having these uh, powerhouses like Ohio State, like uh, LSU, like Alabama, Texas, although they kind of are down right now, but how those teams started to emerge. It has to do with or Notre Dame probably is the best example in the sense that I'm talking about historically. 
where as the TV became more popular, these teams realized there's an opportunity and these teams were the ones that were on TV in the early days. And then because they got early movers advantage, they are the ones that eventually became the Blue Bloods and won all the national titles. So that's kind of the model. And that transition is what created what creates today's game, which is all about contracts. It's all about TV contracts. Um, a good example of that, going back to the Big Ten, which is one of the biggest conferences if you know nothing about football hopefully this is interesting if you don't care about football at all hopefully the craziness of this whole business model is at least interesting enough for you guys to listen to it because i find it absolutely fascinating and i'm gonna go all in the weeds here but basically what i just explained led to tv contracts today being the driver of college football as a business because it is a business when you're talking about the sec schools like alabama schools like michigan ohio state um they approach all of this like a business not like a non-profit thing where you're letting college kids play sports all right there's none of that it is a business the same way running a cable channel like uh, i don't know mtv's a business it's really like running a cable channel that's also a big media company that's the closest equivalent to being a an athletic director at a major major university or a conference head for one of these power five conferences now the case study that i like to use is the big 10 because the school i root for is in the big 10 but basically one of the fads that came out in the mid-2000s was these conferences creating massive TV deals with companies like Fox and ESPN slash ABC because ABC owns ESPN because and then Disney owns ABC so it's really Disney and Fox but um, creating deals with those guys for exclusive broadcasting rights and then creating their own cable channels either as an independent entity or in partnership with an ESPN so that happened and the first one to really do it successfully was the Big Ten Conference. Jim Delaney, who's the head of the Big Ten Conference, although he's retiring this year, it's kind of like the mastermind behind the whole the whole model, and he created what's now the Big Ten Network. Big Ten Network, you know, it's kind of like one of these miscellaneous cable channels at first that you had to pay extra money for, no one was doing it. Um, not a lot of people were watching it back in like 2007, 8 when it first launched. But it slowly grew and grew and grew, and um, it became the main driver for the Big Ten Conference's revenue. And the Big Ten makes the most money out of all the Power Five conferences, mostly because they were the first ones, early movers advantage again, to get into their own cable network, their own version of ESPN just for their teams. Um, It went from propelling the conference around 2012 so it started in 2007 about five years in uh the conference was pulling in around between 300 to 350 million in revenue and then and now in 2018 it's taken in 759 million dollars in revenue in 2017 it took in um 512 million in revenue so it's just been growing and growing into this monster and there's a few reasons why there's a few reasons why this model has worked so well for the big 10 
Um, this is just kind of, I'm, by the way, I'm giving this as kind of like a primer for what I'm going to get into in a second. But just to, this is kind of all designed to give you an overview of the business of college football at a high level with the biggest piece being TV contracts. But anyway, so it went from $300 million-ish in 2012 to now $750 plus million in 2018. And in the past two years, you know, it's gone from 500 50-ish million to getting closer to 800 million and the reason why is there's a couple things for one athletically on the field right now the big 10 is as strong as it's been in a long time uh powerhouses like ohio state are some you know the top 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 teams in the country and there's been a lot of parity in the conference so from a competition standpoint it's very appealing for alums, for general college football fans, period. There's a lot of eyeballs on the Big Ten right now, but that's not all. The other big thing happened in 2013, after 2012. And what that is, is um, they added Rutgers and Maryland into the conference. Now, from a competition standpoint, it doesn't really mean much. Those two teams in terms of football especially, are terrible compared to a lot of teams in the Big Ten. This kind of upset a lot of Big Ten fans because they're just looking at it from a competitive standpoint. They're not putting you know a business lens on any of this. And they think it's you know a garbage addition to the conference. <laughs> Tradition, Michigan, Ohio State. It's a Midwestern conference. What is Rutgers and Maryland doing in this conference? <laughs> so that's all they care about, and they just complain on message boards they don't get the big picture the reason why maryland and Rutgers got an invite to the big 10 conference is has nothing to do with the schools themselves other than the schools fit the profile as big research universities you know there's a general requirement needed to be in the big 10 and they fit those requirements but the carrot in terms of the eyes of the big 10 is the fact that they are in major, major metropolitan cable markets. They are in the D.C. market, in the case of Maryland, in the case of Rutgers. They are in the New York City market. And they're in the New Jersey market, which alone is a pretty big market, bigger than most of the markets in, out of any team in the Big Ten Conference. New Jersey alone is, you know, has 15 million people in it. So... They got the New Jersey, the New York City, and the Washington, D.C. markets, and um, the Philadelphia market, because Rutgers is located right smack in the middle of the state, halfway between New York City and Philly. Well, technically a little closer to New York City, but still qualifies as the Philly market. So what that does is open up a ton of negotiation leverage when it comes to the Big Ten and um, when it comes to negotiating their cable contracts with these cable companies, they now have a geographic fit for all of those major markets and have a reason to try to get into the basic cable packages rather than the um, premium cable packages in these markets. And that's what they did. A lot of this is dependent on sales talent, bargaining talent, which the Big Ten had. But all of that combined led to a massive, massive addition in TV contracts to the conference, which means more revenue. That is, at the highest level, the business of college football. But then 
there's the school level, right? The athletic directors at the school who are all pawns in this game and how it affects them. So most of them are operating in a red right now. They're losing money year over year. But they're losing money year over year because they have to invest back into their programs. Because right now in the world of college football, there is a massive arms race for facilities. So before when I was talking about TV contracts, that's more like the high-level business goals for the conference. But that all funnels down to an individual school level, and the goals for the schools are very different, and it's a much steeper challenge. Um, Basically, as an athletic director, there's a few things. There's the recruiting standpoint of everything. There's the uh, facilities that you need to compete. And then there's the TV side of things and conferences, conference realignment, etc., getting into the right conference. And then there's just balancing your day-to-day relationships and managing each sport individually, hiring coaches, firing coaches, typical things like that. So that's what you're looking at. But in the case of football, football's a unique entity. It's what drives the ship. So there's so much scrutiny being put on who's getting hired and who's getting fired on these football teams. And... It's crazy. Like right now, coaching contracts are insane and had um, a disproportionate increase in uh, money as far as what top head coaches make in the past 15 years when all this cable contract stuff blew up. And the reason why is because football is an interesting business in the sense that performance is totally binary, meaning it's totally a pass-fail thing. A coach could you know on one hand you go 10 and 2 or i'm sorry 11 and 2 10 and 3 12 and 0 and another coach can go 1 and 11 2 and 10 3 and 9 something like that and uh it could be season over season just basically who you lose that year you lose your star quarterback or whatever you can go from being at the highest of highs to the lowest of lows and coaches in college football it's kind of like the stock market there's a lot of hype placed on coaches who hit a hot streak in their careers and then there's other coaches who are actually really good that are looked at as cold or you know not hot because they have one bad season somewhere or something wasn't a good cultural fit And they're on ice. And it's just this fast-moving, crazy world that's 100% based on wins and losses. Whereas in the regular business world, um, people can kind of finesse their performances at past places. They can kind of, uh, you know, win someone over sales-wise because the data isn't A, as available, B, isn't as black and white as it is in college football. So now... Because there's so much money and so much um, revenue that is dependent on football success, these coaches have a ton of leverage when it comes to bargaining deals. And that's why now you're seeing coaches who never even won a national title but has a pretty good track record getting $6 million a year, like the recent uh, contract that the Penn State coach just got, for example. He's never won anything significant, and he's getting paid $6 million a year with bonus incentives 
to manage an amateur football team. That's how crazy this is getting. But colleges and athletic directors are getting desperate because they need that success to fund their entire athletic program. And on top of that, booster relations matters. Boosters who, you know, can give you, you know, a million, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, 100 million dollar donation out of nowhere all look at this stuff and pay really close attention to it. So you have this another another set of eyes on all this besides you as the athletic director. And you got to play nice with them because they're the ones giving you that extra money. So you're not 100% dependent on um on football revenue and state funding if you're a, you know, public state college. So that's the other crazy dynamic at play, but boosters also follow recruiting. And recruits are 17-year-olds. You know, they're naive kids that don't really understand the full picture of it. And what they want is a dog and pony show when they visit the school. So they want the nicest facilities, uh, the nicest weight rooms, nicest stadium. You know, they want fan support. They want all that stuff. And because the most rich college football teams and the biggest conferences with the most donors and the most tradition and history and national titles because they will get these private donations that let them spend you know 200 million dollars on a new practice facility they are kind of pushing that arms race forward and then everyone else has to by default play catch up or become irrelevant so it's this momentum game and this arms race. And if you decide to say, this is stupid, we can't do this, you just free fall as a business. So it's this crazy arms race. And a lot of it is just to appeal to 17-year-olds. You're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of million dollars. And we all know at the end of the day, coaching talent matters. You need a good coach. But good coaches can fail easily if they can't recruit. The lifeblood of all this money all of this attention goes back to the players. And the players are making these decisions to join these colleges at this age where they don't really even know any. They're seven, they're high school kids. And the time that these kids commit to these schools has become earlier and earlier and earlier because of the pressure the coaches put on the kids and kids wanting to get it out of the way. So now you're having this arms race where you're spending hundreds of million dollars to not even attract the senior in high school, but you're trying to get that sophomore of high school in high school really comfortable with your school. So they some you have kids now at 15 committing to these colleges. And that's what's driving the boat. The kids at the end of the day are what drive the boat. And all of these hundreds of million dollars and these TV contracts are all subsets of it because you're not going to get those eyeballs eventually long term if all the teams in your conference are not recruiting well. That's how it works. The SEC that has the number one team in the country right now in LSU has a lot more money than the Sun Belt. Or Conference USA, which is the same geographic region, but a much uh, poorer conference in terms of alumni, donations, uh, recruiting, prowess, things like that. So that's how this game works.
The schools are desperate for winning coaches who can recruit and coach the team because they are likely, unless they are a powerhouse program, operating at a loss, and they want hope that they can one day turn it around and operate flat or at a profit where they can fund all the other athletic programs that you need to fund, and on top of that, have a winning football program. That's the end goal for any athletic director. And if you're in a smaller conference, like the Sun Belt or Conference USA, USA, the other goal or dream you have is when conference realignment happens, which is this other unique beast that works kind of like an earthquake. You can't really predict it, but you can sort of predict it. Um and it has to do more with personal relationships, relationships between different schools within one conference and other conferences looking at schools as appealing. That's a whole other can of worms I'm not even getting into. But, um, you know, if you're a smaller school, your hope is one day to get picked up by one of these big power conferences the way Rutgers and Maryland got picked up for the Big Ten, Syracuse. And Louisville got picked up for the ACC, which is another East Coast conference. West Virginia got picked up by the Big 12, which is actually kind of like a Plains, Midwest Plain State conference, believe it or not. So now you have West Virginia playing against Oklahoma and Texas schools all the time. So it's wacky. It's crazy. It's fun to follow because... As you can see, all these factors at play, you're creating this kind of monster of a business model. But the problem is the disproportionate level of money and resources and power when it comes to the haves and the have-nots. There's a few haves, there's like 25 haves, and then there's a bunch of have-nots. And um, the problem that I'm seeing in the future with all this is that the gaps are starting to widen a bit. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and there's a small, like, mid-level. And it's getting to the point now where performance-wise, the recruits see these differences so drastically that you're seeing the exact same teams competing at the highest level of football now every single year. It's the same exact teams. And that's kind of always been the case, but I feel like it's getting more so the case. Um, so that's something to look out for along with the decline of football's popularity in general. That's kind of the thing that's always been rumored, kind of speculated, talked about. Football participation on the youth level is dropping lower and lower and lower. But at the same time, in a lot of these places, football is still, you know, it's like church is one, football is two. It's just part of the community. So that's going to be very stubborn if you know soccer or something else becomes more popular. It's going to be a, a very stubborn process um, when it comes to getting rid of football in some of these communities in like Texas where you have 20,000-seat high school stadiums. That's how crazy this is. What's really interesting is when you compare the size of college football stadiums to other stadiums and other sports around the world. College football stadiums are the biggest stadiums in the entire world. Neyland Stadium in Tennessee, the Big House in Michigan, Beaver Stadium for Penn State, uh, Kyle Field at Texas A&M, places like that are bigger than any soccer stadium in any country for the most part. There's a few, you know, here and there in other countries, there are a few arena uh, stadiums that are 
the same level, but all in all, college football stadiums are the biggest, which makes no sense. They're bigger than the pro stadiums, but that has to do with the arms race and the fact that the United States is just so big in general. There's lots of communities that are underserved when it comes to pro sports. You know, Knoxville, Tennessee doesn't have a pro football team. You have the Tennessee Titans, but the Tennessee Titans were not there until the year 2000. There were no pro football teams in Tennessee before that, for example. Um, So that's kind of the deal. So just to overview real quick, at the highest level of business in college football, you have these TV contracts and these conferences negotiating power, negotiating getting into these big metropolitan areas as a basic cable package. So that's at the highest level. That's what gives you all the extra, extra revenue that all of these schools wanted. Rutgers and Maryland were making a fraction in their old conferences pre-2014 or 2013 than they will be making um, very soon in the next five years or so where they're going to be getting it. 30 40 50 million dollars annually just for being a member forget anything they do on their parts but that's just you know to get in the club you get those payouts so that's why at the highest level this tv contract negotiation process is such a big deal that's why maryland and Rutgers are in the big 10 um and then so that's how if you're the commissioner of these conferences that's your biggest business initiative and then on the flip side If you're the school and you're the athletic director, it's playing this very fine line and walking this very tight rope between being a manager of athletic programs and also a business owner when it comes to finessing the boosters, hiring and firing the coaches of the teams. That's going to be 75% of your revenue for the year. Um, lots of pressure. That's why you see a lot of these ADs getting hired and fired with quickness, almost as quick as coaches. And then you have the coaches who have to manage recruiting. And that means as a coach lobbying for better facilities, because you're looking at all the teams you're playing against and they're building new glass indoor stadiums with offices overlooking Lake Michigan, like Northwestern. Northwestern isn't even good, and they have a practice facility. It's made of glass. That was hundreds of million dollars right on Lake Michigan, lakefront view. Kids are practicing indoors. It's 20 degrees outdoors, and they're right on the water. Comfy as hell. That's the beast that you're looking at right now, and that's Northwestern. That's not even the Alabamas and the LSUs of the world. So coaches are lobbying for better facilities. Better facilities are hundreds of millions of dollars. So as the athletic director, you got to balance that with the budgets for everything else and making sure that your school and your business is appealing to 15-year-old kids that happen to be good at football. Um, that's kind of how you get to where we are today. It is a business of haves and have-nots right now. And then you have these middle teams that are in the cool kid conferences but don't make any uh, money off of being good at football. <laughs> Those are kind of, That's kind of the landscape at a high level. 
that's kind of the business you're dealing with at a high level. And that's why every year you have things like the coaching carousel where there's just mass amounts of hirings and firings and coaches picking up six-figure contracts like it's nothing. And that's also at the same time of year where most of these schools get their biggest donations. Their biggest donations, I think, by around 65 to 70-ish percent in terms of how disproportionate it is. Um, these million-dollar donations by these boosters happen right towards the middle end of the football season. According to a report I saw um, by 60 Minutes back in 2012 where they interviewed the athletic director of Michigan, and he kind of gave some of these numbers. And then the last thing I want to mention is um, is just this underworld of recruiting that I haven't even touched up on where you have kids getting paid by random alumni. Um, you have bidding wars for kids. All this is illegal, by the way. But there's a really good documentary on YouTube, actually, called um, Foul Play, Paid in Mississippi. It's by S SB Nation, and it's this four-part documentary where this investigative journalist goes down to Mississippi and gets into the underbelly of this whole bidding war in college football recruiting down in Mississippi, where he profiled this high-level pro high, uh, high school recruit that has all of these schools bidding for him illegally under the table because a head coach cannot do that. Um, there's these like secondary coaches that do it, and the you know the whole debate is: Did the coach tell them to do this? Did they do it on their own to get this kid so they can say that he recruited this kid and it makes their own profile look better? But basically, everyone knows it. It's the worst kept secret in all of college sports that these top kids are getting paid lots of money, um, and they literally got this journalist literally got a phone call with the recruit's mom talking to this assistant coach at the uh, University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and she was basically running down what every school was willing to pay for the kid to commit to their program. They are talking, you know, this school, 60000 LSU, 70000 Mississippi State, 80000 Like, she was literally saying the numbers on this phone call. And what's crazy is this kid took a tour to Ole Miss and what supposedly happened, according to the kid, was that he went to a memorabilia shop, I believe, at Ole Miss and was given um, like a t-shirt and a hat. And that's illegal. According to the NCAA, the body that overlooks all this, you cannot give gifts to high school recruits. So then what happened was, um, was that this is absolutely insane but basically what happened was some of these top football players in mississippi went on a recruiting trip to mississippi like i just said and what they said was they received free merchandise up to three thousand dollars worth of merchandise from this old miss apparel store called rebel rags and then what happened was old miss lost the bidding war for these kids, one of these kids is a uh, top linebacker called Leo Lewis, and they wound up going to Mississippi State, which is the arch rival school. 
So then what happened was a Mississippi State fan also got the Ole Miss's coach fired because he had all this dirt on him. The Ole Miss's coach was hiring prostitutes on the side and was caught red-handed with prostitutes and it became this big scandal in the world of college football and he was fired. But this ticked off the Ole Miss fan base because they know Mississippi State, their rivals fan, was digging dirt on them. So what happened was they got the most powerful lawyer in in Mississippi who was an Ole Miss booster to help in a lawsuit against these kids saying they got all this free merchandise from this store on a recruiting visit and sued them along with other people at Mississippi State for defamation, slander, and conspiracy. And now these kids that got probably paid by Mississippi State to commit to their team now have to fight a lawsuit from a school that they didn't commit to all because they get tied into this bigger rivalry where a fan at one school got another uh, school's coach fired because he was, uh, you know, paying for hookers on the side. And that is, to the nth degree... The uh, what can happen in this wacky world of the business of college football. So I'm going to end it there because I can't really top that one. There's other wild recruiting stories too. Um, and that's why I follow recruiting. This stuff is crazy. It is the most entertaining business subculture on earth and no one really cares. But I just I find it extremely entertaining. Also... The fact that I root for a a losing team makes recruiting exciting because there's always hope that you can get the right players to make your team suck a little less. But anyway, I just kind of wanted to do this expose on this episode to kind of shed some light on this underworld of the business of college football that I think a lot of people don't have much visibility to. Um, It's just something I like to follow for fun in my spare time on the side. And uh, I think it's about time that more people kind of get an understanding of how crazy this stuff is so that is that i hope you guys liked this little insight episode um expose if you will as usual if you guys have any questions comments etc hit us up at not rocket science show at gmail.com or on insta or twitter at nrs underscore show and if you like this episode please leave us a review on your favorite podcast store slash platform. All right, guys, this is Sean. I am out. Till next time. Thank you guys for listening. And, of course, peace.